Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Writing to Get Business podcast, where you'll get tips to expand your writing skills. Every week, you'll hear tips and strategies to support your writing. Pat Iyer is your show hostess, a ghostwriter, editor, and author who has written 48 books. Sit back, relax, and listen. Here's your hostess, Pat Iyer. Hi, this is Pat Iyer with Writing to Get Business, and I have with me today Steve Cadigan, who is the author of a new book. It is called Work Quake. And it has some fascinating insights about how our work life and our work systems have changed in the 20th century. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I know that our viewers are going to be interested in knowing about your background. What led you to write this book? And first of all, is it your first book? Let me start with that question. Yes, this is absolutely my first book. Um, and I've probably wanted to do this for years and years, and I finally uh, suppressed my procrastinating uh, inner urges and did it. <laughs> <laughs> and those procrastinating inner urges are so effective. Steve, why don't we clean out the closet? Steve, why don't we polish up the resume instead? Yeah. They have all and- messages for us. That's right. I love, in college, uh, I was a history major, and I did a lot of reading and, and writing. And that was back in the, dare I say, days when we didn't have computers, we had typewriters. And I um, couldn't start working on a paper until my room was clean. I don't know why, but I needed to clean my room first. And, and I was much more productive in that setting. And I think it's carried through uh, in my later years. I do find that a messy desk is distracting. I like a sense of order. However, my husband, whose office is about 20 feet from where I'm sitting, does not display that tendency. There's crap <laughs> all over, and he doesn't see it, and it doesn't bother him. <laughs> That's great. Well, listen, uh, to answer your question, I a little just a little bit about my background. I've been in the talent field for probably 35 years, and some people refer to it as human resources. But those of you who aren't familiar with that craft, it's really helping organizations with people, hiring, uh, inspiring, organizing, communicating, dealing with culture and employee relations and dispute resolutions and a whole bunch of things. Um, And over the course of my career, I started to see trends that really I felt were not healthy and trends of discontent from both employers and employees and I didn't see that anyone out there was articulating what was really at the root of this and that we're having the, what I call wrong conversations around um, impediments to people feeling good about work and impediments to employers feeling good about their uh, how to lead and inspire and hire great talent. And while I was thinking about these things, 
um, I started to notice in the news that all the discussion of the future of work is fear-based. And, and I call it the worst marketing campaign in history, that we are scaring everybody. You know, all the jobs tomorrow don't even exist today. And the skills you have today are not going to be helpful to you in the future. Uh, ro- robots, AI, automation is going to replace you. And I found those fundamentally unsatisfying. And I truly believe that being a human has never been more important. And so I wanted to change the conversation. Of course, technology, we need to reconcile in our future. But let's have the discussion and and incorporate that in a way that amplifies our humanity and provides a better outcome for all of us employees and employers. And so that was the inspiration for me to write the book is to change the conversation from fear to inspiration and to showcase stories of people and companies that are taking a different approach and finding good results. And I know from what you've just said that you are well-connected and have had experience with working for some very large companies. In your book, you've drawn on those experiences uh, to a very deep level and brought in the comments and, and impressions and opinions of others. Tell our listener how you sought out those people, how you found them, how you posed to them, I'm writing this book and I'm interested in your thoughts about X, or did you do it completely different? No, I, I it's interesting that you asked that because I've never, I didn't think about the methodology of gaining insights. Uh, for me, it was a combination. Uh, I'm an avid consumer of articles, uh, love reading. Um, and so I, when I see something interesting, I save it uh, in a folder um, online to come back to. And I'm speaking around the, the world. I mean, prior to the pandemic, I actually traveled. If I know it's hard to imagine today, but in, in doing that, I would run into people and I would have really interesting discussions around work and so forth. And some of those conversations, I would remember the person and I went back to and uh, formally interviewed them for my book. So it was a combination of people I knew from work experiences, as you mentioned, I've I've been in. I've worked in three different countries: uh, Singapore, Canada, and the U.S. Five or six different industries, and it's given me a really good, diverse point of view, and it allowed me the opportunity to come across some fascinating people with different insights. And then the last ten years, when I stopped working for someone and started working for myself, that really opened up the the diversity of you know many new people in many new places. And I would attend whether it was conferences or um, teaching a class at a, at a university in uh, in London or, or in Asia, I would run into really interesting people with insights. And so I would start to gather these things. And when it came time to, you know, I need to assemble this, I started calling calling in on these people and say, would you be interested in having a formal place in, in the book? And then did you interview them over Zoom and get a transcript of what they said? I know what I used was a, I used a site called Rev and that was a recommendation from a friend of mine who's a writer. And what Rev does is that you call in to Rev and then you conference call the person you are speaking with. And then it auto produces a transcript of the call. Um, and I thought, wow, this is great technology. I actually think there are people typing this somewhere. They call it a mechanical Turk where I, you know, there was a few times they would send it back. I'm like, no, you missed this, or you flip-flopped my name and the other person's name. So it's not perfect, 
mm-hmm. uh, but I think it was like, it's pretty affordable. It's like a dollar a minute, uh, something like that. And so I used that. I tried to take notes and it just didn't work because I mm-hmm. couldn't be in the moment and taking the notes effectively. Um, and so I used that to, to pretty good effect. Yeah. And then, the, you know, the other thing I used, which is, I don't know if other people are, are doing this. I listened to a lot of podcasts and I would quote people from, from podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was a great source because someone's being interviewed by somebody else and you're just sitting there and going, whoa, that's a really great insight. <laughs> it completely fits my, you know, my, my argument or my point of view that I want to make here. So I've got about a dozen of those um, referred to in, in my book where I heard someone on a podcast go, whoa, that's exactly said way better than I could have said on my own. And so I grabbed it. Yeah. There is content all around us, isn't there? Yeah, it is plentiful. (laughs) Now, you just said that you went out on your own 10 years ago. You transitioned from being an employee to being an entrepreneur. And in your book, you said, we're all entrepreneurs. Tell me more about that. Well, you know, I sit here in Silicon Valley, and that is the uh, dream of many people who come here, just like every actor goes to Hollywood. A lot of entrepreneurs come here, and I've never considered myself an entrepreneur. I am risk averse. I am a great um, soldier is not the right word, but I'm a great team player. Like I love being uh, on teams and, and contributing, but I'm not someone who I have lots of novel ideas. So I never thought I was an entrepreneur. And in the course of writing this book, I think and and reading many other perspectives on entrepreneur, I think all of us have dimensions of that. Maybe we're not comfortable going and raising money from somebody or creating an idea from nothing, but all of us have dimensions of being entrepreneurs and and pursuing an idea and building a a living out of it. Um, And we have it's so much easier today than say 20 years ago. You can have an idea and create a course and sell it online. And now you're an Mm -hmm. entrepreneur. You're doing your you're doing your own thing. So I don't consider myself an entrepreneur as in I am creating some technical product, but I definitely feel there are, there are pieces of my being an entrepreneur where I'm just supporting my family by doing my own thing and having multiple clients, which is not easy, way harder than I thought, but it's mm-hmm. doable. It's mm-hmm. absolutely doable, you know, and, and, and you know that from your own experiences, but, but that's what I wanted to try to do in that section of the book is demystify and um, bring the the perspective that entrepreneurs are this unreachable, rare species and that, you know, I'm not that and say, no, if I can do this, you can do it. And look at all these other people, people who are working in nonprofits that stumbled onto doing incredible things um, and they're entrepreneurs and you can be too. And when I think about that concept, I think about, I think it's on a continuum. You can have, People who are treated as entrepreneurs or creatives, creative people generating ideas to improve a company who are in the employee role. And then you have the entrepreneurs who are having side gigs, which you address in your book. And then the people who are totally self-employed. When I read your book and saw that statement, I thought about my, my babysitter's husband, who was a union carpenter. And when he was not working, we asked him to come to our house to renovate our bathroom. And in our enthusiasm, 
in the beginning of this experience, we said to him, and we need to have the kitchen counters changed uh, and the flooring changed. Is that a project you could take on? And he said to me, Pat, I'm a carpenter. I'm a union carpenter. I am not a general contractor. I am not interested in doing that. And I thought, but you're out of work and we'll pay you to do it. And this would be great. And then Mm -hmm. we realized, no, it isn't great. I'm wondering if somewhere along the line, individuals get that beaten out of them, that ability to think beyond, as I envisioned, he was in a lucite box with a lid on it. Mm-hmm. And he knew where his dimensions were. He wasn't going to go beyond that. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I think this starts for some uh, areas of the world in, in grade school. Um, you know, your place is to be a passive learner. We'll tell you what you need to know. Um, and you need to be respectful of the authority. Um, and not, uh, you know, and suppress your intellectual curiosity um, and your expression of your individuality. And that plays out. You know, I've been in human resources my whole career. And one of the dimensions of uh, that I have to look over in every organization I've been in is performance management. We're going to rate you. We're going to rank you. And I hate it. I hate it. I never liked grades in school. Uh, I got pretty good grades, but I never liked it. And I never thought it was fair. And I wasn't a good person at taking tests. And, um, and so I've tried to, you know, re- have a different conversation in organizations around this, such as we're here to create value, you know? And so we're trying to, um, you know, that's what we need to do. We may believe that giving someone a rating and ranking is producing the right outcome, but we're boxing them in potentially, or we're missing something. And you know, why, what, what benefit do we get by doing that? And they said, well, how do we know what to pay them if we don't put a rating on them? And so you know, this is one of the things in this phase of my chapter of my life that I'm trying to do is hold a mirror up to organizations and say, you know, we're doing some things that don't really make sense, that maybe they were implemented for good reasons at different times in history, but I'm not sure they make sense now. And uh, I'll give you another example in the corporate world, similar to the example you just gave, which is I was meeting with an executive in a very large telecom company in Spain a few years ago. And I said, what's your biggest challenge? And she said, I have a captive employee population that we designed to keep here. And now all they want to do is stay, but not do anything. That we've our our system was motivating tenure, not innovation and not new ideas. And the govern and the statutory laws are prohibitive for me to let them go because it would cost it would cost like 10 years of pay to let them go versus I just have to let them stay. I said, so your systems that you built have created what I call people playing career difference. They're just they're not playing to create or innovate, they're playing not to get fired. And so that's the system you built. I mean, mm-hmm. you can be upset at those people, but that system you built d- is delivering that outcome. <laughs> and so it's, it's, and th- that person didn't build it themselves, they inherited it. But it's, you know, that's another thing that I see where I'm like, w- you know, be careful what you're building for, you know, um, in, in some of these organizations because it, you'll have some unintended consequences sometimes. That's one of my favorite ways to 
eliminate the word failure. You don't fail, Steve. You have unintended consequences. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) One of the points that you made in your book was that we are well beyond any era of you start working in a company, you stay there for 20 years, 40 years, you retire with a huge party and the gold watch. I think your number was like an average of 2.8 years of longevity in a company. How does that influence how companies manage and lead their employees? Well, I have to tell you, we are in the throes of a massive transformation relative to what you're talking about. In, in every part of the world where I help people and leaders and organizations think about talent, tells me their biggest challenge is hiring and keeping people. And their knee jerk is when I say, well, why are people leaving faster? Why, why is that happening? The knee jerk is, oh, those millennials, you know, the Gen Z, short attention span, career sugar high, shopping for a promotion, disloyal, don't have the right values. And I said, I disagree. I fundamentally reject what your you know, knee jerk reaction is. I said, I believe that what organizations are facing is a talent base that has seized the world differently because of how we've created this technology. For example, talent can see more of what's possible. They can see more opportunity. And if you, executive, Mr. or Mrs. Executive, 40 years ago could see what they see, how, much, how you can apply your skills in different ways, all the jobs that are open, all the compensation strategies, leadership styles, and so forth, you can't tell me you would be in the same company 40 years later. You just, it's just not a reality. They have so much more visibility to choice, and they're acting on it, and you don't like that. So, mm-hmm. but the truth is, mm-hmm. when I ask that, the big question is, do you think that's going to change? And their answer is no. I said, so you don't believe we're in a moment in time that people are going to, in the future, start staying in companies longer. They said, that's right. I said, okay, so now let's think about our goal, which is let's accept that for a second and imagine how can we create value in a more fluid workforce where people are staying less. And so, and I talk about this in the book, as you know, let's look, let's look to organizations that have faced this and done okay. College basketball. The great athletes in college basketball traditionally would stay four years, finish their degree, and then go on to the pros, the best mm-hmm. players. Today, they stay six to nine months. And the even great resistors like Co- Coach Krzyzewski at Duke were like, no, this is not right. I don't like the one and done. It's not good. And then he realized, I'm not going to get the best players because they only want to stay a year and then they want to go to the pros. Uh, and that may even, and that's even changed because some go right from high school. But what they had to do was build a new model that creates value every year. And the top schools figured it out. They figured we have to recruit differently. We have to have a different value proposition, but we can deliver it. And so what, I'm, what I think we're facing right now is just a new frontier of where organizations are trying to do that. And since I wrote the book, uh, I've, done, I've done even more research and in you know, living in my neighborhood here, and I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not uh, for a second wanting anyone to think that I think the world revolves around Silicon Valley or everything's great here. There's a lot of problems and a lot of things broken in Silicon Valley. But if you look at the automobile industry right now, Tesla, which was created here in the Valley, is more valuable than Honda, Toyota, and Ford combined. And they're not making more profit. They're not producing more cars. 
but they're way more valuable as measured by the investors saying, we think that company can innovate. Their median tenure right now is 2.3 years. Most of the people they hired are not from the automobile industry. So what's going on there? That's interesting to me that they're outflanking these entrenched you know, competitors in the automobile industry and they're coming at it with a whole different model. So you can't say to be successful in the car industry, you have to have been around for 100, 200 years. Not true. They're proving it right now. And I think that's, hap- that's happened in the hotel industry. It's happened in the music industry, the taxi industry. Like we're seeing that and people are having to think of different models, right? Like the, the Ubers and the Lyfts are most of your experience with that company is not with an employee. It's with a contractor. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that they're, they're, you know, uh, in some cases I, I consider these, these are almost like experiments right now. And I don't know how it's going to land, but I think that people, especially in the pandemic have tasted the freedom and they want more, they want to preserve the autonomy and the freedom. And they're going to be looking for the opportunity to do that. So, but it, I, I don't think we know exactly how it's going to play right now, Pat. I think it's still, uh, still somewhat soft in terms of the clay. And um, my advice to a lot of the companies that I coach relative to, hey, Steve, how should we deal with this? Is like, we're, I think you need to try some different things and need to look, and I'll give you some examples of other companies doing different things and go benchmark with them and see how they're doing it, how the transition worked for them. And maybe there's some learnings for you in that process. Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. If you want to communicate as clearly as you can, if you wonder what you can do to capture the attention of your audience, if you want shortcuts for becoming a great writer, if you want to earn more money, then this message is just for you. Here's why. Billionaire Warren Buffett says the one easy way to become worth 50% or more than you are right now is to hone your communication skills, both written and verbal. There is a cost to not dealing with this. Lost income, lost clients, and lost opportunities. If you ignore improving your writing skills, it just gets worse. What most people do when facing the need to write is to say, Everyone has typos. Everyone uses English poorly. No one cares if I misspell words, but that's not true. Those are justifications for not writing well. You are judged by how effectively you use English. Once I started my business helping attorneys, I realized there was a whole lot more to learn about writing than what I had to do in college. I mastered blogging, creating opt-in reports, writing effective email sequences, book chapters, and compelling sales copy for my websites. Every week, I invest in my knowledge by staying on top of business writing techniques. Being a great writer is not just about writing books. You may never want to write a book, but as a business person, You do want to gain visibility and credibility through blogging, writing articles or white papers, reaching people with your sales copy, emails, or book chapters. Finally, it's your turn. I'm now offering a way to help you gain confidence and skill in business writing. 
When you join Business Writing Circle, you'll get the key to crafting interesting blogs that show your knowledge, deepen your relationship with your readers, and enable you to sell your services and products to an engaged audience. Creating enticing email sequences that nurture your your relationship with your prospects and clients. Writing website copy that hooks the attention of your ideal clients. Weaving in stories that entice your readers to stay with your message. Using the principles of copywriting to connect with your audience in a powerful way. Outlining and delivering a chapter that shares your expertise and encourages people to reach out to you. Picking a topic for a book that will build your business or share your legacy. You have a choice to make. Do what you've been doing, or worse, do nothing at all. You know where that will lead. Do you want to keep that nagging feeling that you are missing out on opportunities that you don't quite know what to blog about or put something in an email that will lead the reader to take action? Take a new action and get a new result. Finally achieve that feeling of success that comes with knowing your written skills are effectively bringing you success. Don't be embarrassed again. Here's what to do now. Go to this link and join Business Writing Circle. The link is http colon forward slash forward slash mywriting.tips forward slash bwc. Join now. This introductory price will disappear soon. I would love to help you. Now let's return to the show. You raised the point about the pandemic changing the model. Uh, Everywhere I go, I hear about companies who can't find talent, who are advertising, looking for workers, who are raising the minimum wage. Was it um, one one large company just announced $15 an hour? I drive through my town and I see a sign outside the restaurant that says, hiring all positions, inquire within. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, it's, it almost feels to me, and I know this is incorrect, it feels like there's a sieve and people are draining through the holes. Where are they going? What's going on? Why are we having so much trouble with people's positions being constantly open? Now let's return to the show. Oh, that's a great question. We had this debate at dinner uh, as a family a few nights ago. Like, where are those restaurant, you know, fast food workers going? Like, what are they doing? And I heard the same thing you've had. I heard a radio uh, advertisement yesterday, $15,000 signing bonus for a truck driver. Um, And I've seen in Las Vegas, I was in Las Vegas a few months ago, $2,000 signing bonus on a coffee shop. Okay. So what, there's a number of things happening. You know, number one, I mean, the, the people could say, well, those unemployment checks and the stimulus payments or, you know, having people stay on the sidelines maybe longer. I don't believe that's true because the states that have cut those unemployment benefits are not seeing people return. And what you have now, you know, I've lived in Silicon Valley, tried to recruit uh, engineers for the last 20 years. And let me tell you, it is not easy when they have every engineer I ever hired at LinkedIn when I was there from 2009 through 2012 had multiple offers every single one. So how do you compete? 
Well, you got to work on your culture. You got to be a desired destination where those people want to go. You're not going to be able to outbid the Googles, the sushi chefs, the on-site childcare. You're not going to do that. So you have to know what your assets are. And what I'm seeing in hospitality and in the United States, 50% of the workforce works in either a hotel or restaurant, fast food, you know, or retail. 50% of the workforce. And that in those industries have not had to compete for talent before. They've had sort of a captive pool. People mm-hmm. need to work there. So they've done it. They've not had to innovate and create. They've not had to really say, wow, the experience here has got to be better than all the other choices. And I think what's happened, and again, I, you know, just my perspective, time slowed down. People were laid off. People had a moment to reflect instead of just, oh, I need to go get another job. They were given an opportunity to sort of say, I can't go back to work. I just can't because of the pandemic. So maybe I should think about studying something new. Maybe I don't want to go back and become vulnerable again to another recession or a pandemic. Maybe I want to try something different. So I don't know where these people are going. And this gets to another problem that we have as a society, particularly in in the U.S., and I think every other country faces it too. When the United States reports unemployment figures, do you know what they're doing? They're going to look at the payroll taxes and see where they're increasing, where they're decreasing. And that's where they know jobs are getting lost. And, and if people let more than 20 people go, you have to let, you have to do something called the Warren Act. You have to file and let your local government know in most jurisdictions. Well, if someone goes to a gig job, someone goes to make money, um, you know, driving an Uber or a Lyft or delivery for DoorDash and Scar. They're not being tracked. And so my um, hypothesis is that a lot of people who had those you know, um, service-related jobs, retail, restaurants, and so forth, are trying their hand at some gig work and some kind of patchwork of, of a, a number of different things to see, to see how it works. And there are more platforms today like Upwork, for example, where you can go and plug in and, and it's, your, it's your billboard. It's your opportunity to showcase your skills. Um, so I, I think hopefully we're going to get better at understanding where people are going and what they're doing. But when they go into this independent contractor world, it's not as trackable as the standard you know, employer opportunities are to track. So it's, it's hard to know right now. Mm-hmm. And you're bringing up a great point that there are many opportunities to do a piecemeal putting together skills. Uh, The last time I had a paycheck was 1987. And when I went out on my own, I was teaching, I was consulting, I was doing expert witness work, I was writing books, I did a little bit of staff nursing. I put all those things together to stay self-employed. Mm-hmm. It's even easier today than it was at that time to find opportunities for people in another part of the world to hire you and mm-hmm. work on that basis. So the opportunities are stronger, but I also I want to come back to the 2.8 year statistic because I spent 28 years working on medical malpractice cases and I saw firsthand what happens when the seasoned, experienced people, nurses, for example, leave the healthcare environment and the people who are left taking care of the patients are the new graduates who don't have the critical thinking 
or the experience or somebody to turn to to say, hey, I don't quite understand what's going on. What do you think I should do? Healthcare is is impact is being impacted by this in an enormous way. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you have some thoughts about it, and you're a healthcare consumer, as am I, and you want the best, most experienced person to take care of you if you need healthcare. How do, how do we adjust for that kind of turnover, that attrition, or the, the loss of the experienced person mm-hmm. who can look at a situation and say, yes, Steve, I know what your problem is. We need to call Dr. Jones and get him down here to look at you. I have a personal experience with this. My my kid, my twins, when they were six, were involved in a very awful accident. They were an elderly gentleman, unfortunately, drove onto the sidewalk and smashed them both against a marble wall. And so I lived in the hospital for probably six months. They're both doing fine today. And and thank the Lord for for that and the thank mm-hmm. the medical care. But we noticed something very interesting when we were in the hospital. And I spent you know every night that my son was there, I was there, or their mom was there. And so we started to notice something. When things would break down, it was in a shift change. Mm-hmm. And prior to that experience, I was always curious: why do we work these hospital workers so hard? Why are they putting in all these long shifts? And then it hit me. Because the moment of handover is the moment of opportunity for confusion or miscommunication or misunderstanding. So we would always make sure we're not taking a break. We're not out to lunch and not in our son's room when the shift change happened. Because someone would come in and say, okay, I see here that uh, we need to up the dose of I'm like, no, 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 no. There's no up in the dose. The agreement mm-hmm. we had was, and they're mm-hmm. like, really? Okay, well, let me go back to the doctor. So that was... A very interesting point. And, and this, you know, I, I said, I didn't say this explicitly in the book, but when I talk about this, I'm not happy that the tenure of people is declining. And clearly when lives are on the line or we're trying to put someone on the moon and their life's on the line, you know, more fluid workforce is going to create potential for more misunderstanding and the lack of continuity could be single point of failure. That's a problem. And so how do you mitigate that? Well, you mitigate that by having to take a look at what can we do to create the environment, the work experience, such that the right people want to stay here and produce. And the, the, the problem that is, I think people are looking to have solved for them, the workforce I'm speaking about now, is that I believe what's happened because of the advancement of technology is that the psychology of a worker has shifted from, I feel safer staying here a long period of time to, I feel safer moving because the more I move, the more new things I learn, the more vital I am and valuable I am to more people. If I work in different places, I've got my odds of you know, being employable are greater. But if I stay in one industry and I do one thing, I'm going to be more vulnerable in a world that keeps changing. And so, and I don't think employers for the most part have recognized that. And so nurses, you brought up nurses. So I have a stepsister who works for a firm that places um, temporary nurses around the country. And she's never been busier. Uh, and, And her challenge is finding people interested in doing this work. And what the hospital systems are going to face right now, and they are facing, is people are going to make a change in their lives when they say, what I'm putting in and the rewards I'm receiving on the other end are out of balance. And if I'm putting and giving more and sacrificing more than the recognition and the rewards 
or the experience, whatever that is, it's filling my pocket. It's way out of whack. They're going to, they're going to move. And that's, I believe, uh, listening to friends uh, who are in the medical community, nurses, my wife's a dental hygienist, the, the, the fear, the lack of respect, the um, lack of care for that function as a whole is not being well received by that community and saying, you know, it's not about the money now. It's about people being reckless with their health or decisions that administrations are making that don't seem to be in the best interest of my safety. Um, I just read really fascinating LinkedIn post yesterday from a chairman of a department at Emory Riddle University in Florida resigning because the school is not requiring anyone to wear masks, just resigned. And he's like, I don't want to. I love what I do. He's the chairman of the department. He's been there 20 years doing great work, recognized, nationally recognized, uh, written. But because the school is not listening uh, to his satisfaction, he's like, I'm out. And so that was when it was out of balance, right? I feel, and he's immunocompromised. He has AIDS. Uh, he's like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. And so, I think we we were in this really interesting reality, and I and I almost feel like it's a leadership test that we've never seen before of how people are going to respond to adversity. And you know, getting back to your question, I feel like uh, it's a healthy exercise to go. Do I like what I'm doing? Do I like who I'm with? Do I believe in the culture? Do I believe in the mission or the rewards? Do I feel like the rewards are commensurate with my commitment, what I'm sacrificing and what I'm doing and the time I'm giving here? And when that gets really out of balance, which it may be in that field, uh, people are going to make a change. And so if you're an employer and you're seeing that, well, you have to look at every dimension of that experience you know, and say, are we attracting the right people that have the right sensibilities to deliver the right quality here? And what, and maybe we need to adjust some things, whether it's time off, whether it's compensation, retirement, whatever, whatever. There's so many elements in that, that and, and dials that an employer can turn that they're going to have to figure out what that is. Yeah, there are many dials from the standpoint of the employer. There's many dials from the complexity of the environment, mm-hmm. from the technology to the communication to the regulatory issues to the safety issues. Um, yep. It's one of those, the high reliability organizations like the nuclear plants, healthcare has been compared to in terms of the complexity. And just as an interesting side note, we used to have eight hour shifts and people love them and they finished with a sense of satisfaction. But if you put people on shifts for 12 hours, then they can work three days and get paid and have four days off before they have to work again. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the patient safety statistics show that as the shift goes on, the nurse becomes tireder, the critical thinking declines, the decision-making is at fault, there's mm-hmm. more medication errors, and at the end of that 12 hours, which is really 12 and a half, by the time you go through change of shift, you have a person who's not as safe as when they walked in the door. So we should go back to eight-hour shifts, even though we have more handoffs. You got mm-hmm. an extra handoff, but you have people who are much more functional and alert at the end of eight hours. 
Um, and also, as you pointed out, nurses are discovering that if they work for a staffing agency, they might get two, three, four times more per hour mm-hmm. than if they're an employee in that hospital. So that's pulling hospitals apart right. Right. on top of the, the COVID issues that have um, affected patients and the staff who have to take care of them mm-hmm. and some of those employment issues. So we are we're certainly in healthcare in a very challenging time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, one of the most underrated parts of the, the dials for both employers and employees is something that I really think can benefit organizations, which is, you know, care and community and making someone feel like they're a part of something. I've, mm-hmm. I've mediated hundreds of disputes in organizations I've worked with over the years and almost every one of these situations that goes bad uh, ends up with uh, someone coming to me and saying, blah, 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 my manager, blah, 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 the employee, blah, blah, blah. And they don't even say good morning to me. And I wrote an article, two words that matter, good morning. You know, this busy world that we're creating for ourselves, we're just not spending the time affirming and recognizing and valuing one another. And if we lose sight of that, we're missing something really important. And I think all of us in the pandemic and even before are starting to miss the sense of connectedness and belonging. I don't need to ask my neighbors for butter. I can just get it delivered. And so I think that's an issue that is an opportunity for organizations. You know, make this, and this is how at LinkedIn, this is how we beat Apple, Google, Facebook, Twitter, all these sexier companies that could pay more than we could. We built a place where people wanted to be, uh, where we're going to make this the best job you ever had. Can't pay you as much as Google, can't offer you the on-site childcare that they can afford because they make more profit in the day than we do in a year. But we promise you that the experience of being here will make you a better person. And if you want to leave, we'll help you. You know, it's like we we know you're going to be here for a certain finite period. So let's talk about preparing you for what's next. And that was a little scary, honestly, implementing mm-hmm. that for like, how's this going to work? And what if people leave? And in the four years that I was there, Pat, our median tenure was nine months every year. And that's not because people left after nine months, because we doubled the size of the company. So we had so many new people that had just started that brought that median number down. But we created a $26 billion company in 15 years with new people, new people, new people, new people. And that's, I think, a, a very interesting experience that's informed my thinking around Maybe we don't need people to be around forever to create really great things. Maybe new people with new ideas and new ways of solving problems and new energy, we undervalued that. Um, and it doesn't work in every business and, and every organization. And you, you and I have grown up in completely different worlds in some respect. Um, but I think we're, we're seeing, a, obviously, a shaking of the view of how people are thinking about work. Um, which causes employers to sort of like, you got to get creative. Like, let's go. Like the, what you, the way you did it is not working now. So at a minimum, admit that I don't, I can't tell you what the right answer is, but you're going to have to try some new things. Um, and you don't have to be the best. You just have to be better than the choices that your employees have, uh, a little bit better. Right. You make me think about my staff development days when I put together an a orientation program and the words that the staff hated to hear from a new employee was, well, you know, where I used to work, we did it differently and we did it this way. And they would go, 
well, then why don't you go back to where you used to work if you don't like it here? And completely missing the point that you just made of maybe they do do it better somewhere else. And maybe we could learn from that experience. But, oh, no, don't confuse me with telling me about a new way to do something. I just I don't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I've seen that my whole career. I am sure you have. One of my favorite um, training courses, we were doing a training. I worked at Fireman's Fund Insurance Company one year. We were doing a train the trainer and we're trying to help people build instructional design. How do you teach someone how to do something? And we said, okay, we broke the, it was like a group of 30 people. We broke them up into teams of four and they had to write the instructions of how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Okay. And to hear, so then we had someone in the front of the room like read the instructions. Okay. And so they're say, okay. And there was, you know, a loaf of bread, peanut butter and jelly, a knife and a plate. Okay. That's all there was. And so someone said, okay, put the peanut butter on the bread. And so the person in the front room took the jar of peanut butter and put it on top of the loaf of bread. And so then everyone realized, oh, open the bread, take two slices out, put it on the plate face down or facing up. Hold your knife in one hand, unscrew the jar of the, pe- you know, and so we forget all these steps sometimes that people mm-hmm. need to, to understand. But that was one of my favorite aha moments. Like, oh yeah, of course we got to be much more explicit when it's really, when it really matters. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that we could talk for hours, Steve, but we won't. <laughs> <laughs> Please. <laughs> We will ask you at this point to share with our listener, how can they find out more about you, about your services, and about your book? Uh, well, first, thank you for very much for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I hope we can have it again. Um, you can find out about me and my book on my website, stevecadigan.com, or you can go find me on LinkedIn. I hear it's a pretty good website. Uh, and, and if you have more questions or an interest um, my book, Workquake, can be purchased anywhere books are sold. We have an Audible version. We have a Kindle version. Um, and we're having it translated into Spanish. And uh, I hope if you feel just an inkling of something feels dissatisfying to you or there's a bitter taste in your mouth around your circumstances at work, I'd encourage you to check out the book because I, I, it's a book in, you know, intended to inspire hope and optimism versus the pessimism that we read about in the media around the future work. So again, thanks for having me today. You're welcome, Steve. And and thank you for sharing your wisdom. Your insights are quite different. And from the perspective that I haven't seen before, I've read a lot of leadership books and I have edited and ghostwritten leadership books. Your perspective is from the employee looking up, or maybe I should say sideways, as opposed Mm -hmm. to the leadership looking down at the employee. And I think that's an important perspective, particularly as we've changed so many rules and experienced so many new models since the beginning of the pandemic and turned things upside down for a variety of reasons. The companies that are thriving and surviving have been able to make those changes, change their models, change the way they relate to their workers. And we know that a lot of companies haven't and have gone under. Lots of good insights in Steve's book. Be sure to get a copy of Work Quake and to come back for the next episode of Writing 
to Get Business Podcast. Thanks so much. Okay. This is Pat Iyer with Writing to Get Business Podcast. You'll enjoy the show by MJ Callaway. MJ, what were some of the topics that we covered on your podcast? We covered a lot. Three areas we did cover was how I used writing short articles as a progression to write my first book. The second topic we covered was the difference between bouncing back, which you don't want to do. You have to listen to find out why and bouncing up. And then the third one was how I use my professional and personal resilience to write the book Bounce Up and the different doors of opportunity that opened because of writing that book. So be sure to watch our show. Check out MJ Callaway's show. I think you'll get a boost of optimism and enthusiasm and enjoy her message. Thank you, Pat. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for writers at writingtogetbusiness.com. That is W-R-I-T-I-N-G-T-O-G-E-T-B-U-S-I-N-E-S-S dot com. Coaches, consultants, and entrepreneurs work with Pat so they can get more business by writing and sharing their expertise. Check out Pat's resources on writingtogetbusiness.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.